Welcome to the sermon podcast of Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ crucified and the promises of God that our faith clings to. For more information, visit us online at faithlutheranoregon.com. We pray. Heavenly Father, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. It was the year 474 A.D. in Vienne in modern-day France. To the people of that village, it seemed like the world was falling apart, even that the world was coming to an end. The Roman Empire was, at the, was in a state of utter collapse. It would collapse just a few years later. Foreigners, barbarian tribes, were raiding their village. There was a famine. They were experiencing pestilence or plague. They were in a pandemic. On top of all, there was an earthquake, causing many houses and even churches to collapse. And then on Easter Day, the history books record that that fire from heaven engulfed the king's palace in flames. An entire force were consumed with the fire, which forced many animals uh, like bears and wolves to, to leave the forest and enter into the village and to devour children. The people recognized all of this as evidence of demonic activity, and they realized, or the, the, as the result, that the devil still had power in this world. And more than that, they, they realized that they did not have the power to even overcome even what the earth could do to them, let alone the devil. The bishop of the area that was affected by all of this was named Mamertus. Mamertus did the only thing he could. He prayed. And he called on the people to pray. And he instituted a, a period of prayer, fasting, litanies, and processions on the three days preceding Ascension, which would be this Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday before Ascension Thursday. And they would pray that God would relieve their suffering and, and bless their crops during the coming year. Today, these three days are called the Rogation Days, with today being Rogate Sunday. The Lutheran Church today still observes these days, and we pray, seeking God's mercies, that he would be gentle in his chastisements, which are seen often in natural disasters and plagues. And we are asking his blessing, especially with regard to farming and gardening. And these rogation days are set aside to remind us how, how utterly dependent we are on God and how we need to be protected from nature's often cruel ways. And more importantly, these days are set aside to remind us of the absolute necessity of prayer. In former days, this would be done with a procession, with the pastor himself leading his congregation around the perimeter of the parish, and so into the farms of the people. And for three days, they would carry banners and a cross and process through the farms, praying like a military regiment going into battle against the forces of the devil and the forces of nature by prayer. 
But I'll bet you've never heard of the Rogation days before today. In our modern day, we think we're too enlightened. Penitential processions are a thing of the past. Many today think that nature can be tamed, that the earth can be controlled, that evil can be harnessed. And so we don't pray. Instead, we make laws. Prayer seems too superstitious, too old-fashioned. We can fix things ourselves. We can control things by making laws. We can even control our crops with genetically engineered plants and regulations. We can control sickness with medicine. But then along comes a pandemic, and we realize very quickly that we can't control everything. This natural tendency of ours to try to control everything is why our epistle from James is so fitting for today. James, the brother of Jesus and the author of the epistle, tradition says that, that he prayed so much that his knees were callous in prayer. So James tells us what the baptismal life of a Christian looks like with prayer and good works. He says, first of all, a Christian understands that he can't control everything, including and especially including himself, the own desires and impulses of his heart. A Christian understands that he cannot do what the law says, at least to the degree that God requires. And the law serves as a mirror, which shows him that he cannot do this. It shows him his sin. And that, in turn, which would and should direct him to his Savior, to a Savior in prayer and to his neighbor in good works. And that's the second thing a Christian is, one who not only hears God's word, but does it. But some ignore that first part, the mirror, and they make a law an end to itself. They take James' words about uh, taking care of orphans and widows literally to mean that if you do these things, you're a true Christian. And you can measure whether or not you're a true Christian by what you do, by the outward works. This is a false way of believing called pietism. Pietism is an overemphasizing of personal piety or outward actions. And what happens when you overemphasize your piety or outward actions is that Christianity becomes shallow. It becomes all about moralism, all about fixing things with the law. But the law doesn't fix things. The law only reveals your heart. And so because you can't keep the law, you either try to downplay the mirror and make laws for everybody else, or you look honestly into the mirror and you fall into despair. In old days, you might have heard people saying things like, well, if you're a Christian, then you don't play cards. You don't dance. You don't buy insurance because that means you don't trust Jesus. You don't drink. You don't do all these other things. And certainly, all these things can be abused. All good things can become bad. Pietism trivializes the faith 
because it makes Christianity all about these superficialities. And pietism doesn't really go away. So today someone might say, I'm so glad I've been liberated and enlightened from those old ideas about playing cards and not drinking, those old conservative ideas. But it doesn't solve the problem if you just replace it with, well, I know where all my food is sourced. I I drive a green car. I shop local or anything else. Or perhaps more relevant to today, you don't wear a mask? I wear a mask. You go out, I stay home. Or on the flip side, you're staying home? This, this virus isn't that dangerous. I'm not afraid of it. I don't fall for everything the government says. Here in Dane County, right now, on the one side, you have whole churches criticizing those critical of the stay-at-home order, essentially saying, we're better than you because we actually care about people's health. And on the other side, whole churches criticizing the other side, saying we're better than you because we actually care about people's rights and freedoms. Pietism is measuring your own righteousness by the low-hanging fruit of what you have done and what you can accomplish. Pietism is the default religion for America. You can be a conservative pietist or a liberal pietist, but it's still pietism. It's a focusing on the laws that you believe that you can keep and a downplay of the gospel and of Christ's work to overcome sin, which you could not. And and if you can do certain things well enough, then, then you have less need for Christ. All you have to do is ignore the perfect morality of the law that God requires Focus on some outward actions, and you can call yourself a pretty righteous Christian. But all of this, as Vogueard says in The Hammer of God, only picking burrs from your coat, something you can get rid of yourself. And if that's the case, then we have no need for Jesus. But we're not more enlightened today. We just think the problem is with everybody else. And so pietism would turn God's good gifts, including prayer, into a law for everybody else. Prayer is not a magic formula that if we get enough people saying it, God might listen. As Luther says in our small catechism, the good and gracious will of God is certainly done without our prayer. But we pray that it may be done also among us. And likewise, God certainly gives daily bread without our prayer, even to all the wicked. But we pray that he would lead us to acknowledge this and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. We cannot tame nature to give us what we need all the time. We cannot control the earth to always and only have good weather, peace, and health. We cannot harness evil by making other people pray. We cannot fix fix our sin by the law. Rather, we pray because we cannot do these things. We pray 
because only God can. Even Christians today have largely ceased to pray. Rogation days, then, it seems, are for people, for men of the past, medieval men, unenlightened and unevolved, men who fear the forces of nature and the forces of the devil. Prayer would suggest that we're dependent on someone else. Prayer would be an acknowledgement of our own sin. But we are dependent on someone else. In fact, sometimes we need God to put burrs in our coat that we can't remove ourselves. We need the ground to cause us to toil and sweat to remind us what we can't do. And even though we should pray for our agricultural pursuits, our farming, and our health, because the forces, forces of nature and the forces of the devil are out of our control, these are not out of God's control. Things like natural disasters or viruses can only happen either by God's active will or God's passive will. Nothing happens that is apart from God's will. As Luther says, God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil counsel and will, which will not let us hallow his name nor let his kingdom come. Sometimes that means breaking down our own will, even our own enlightened thinking through things that are beyond our control, so that God can truly enlighten us with the gospel and his promises, including his promise to hear us when we pray. And he will hear us, not because we pray, but because Jesus has given us access to him. Jesus has made us at peace with the Father. Jesus has already defeated the forces of the devil and the forces of the world. Jesus has overcome the world. In the old Rogation days, on the first two days, on Monday and Tuesday, they would march around the perimeter of the parish into the fields with, two, with, with, with a banner, that, that with a, a red dragon on it that would symbolize the devil. And the banner would be put in front of the cross, symbolizing the devil's power, apparent power in the world. But on the third day of the procession, the devil's banner would be moved behind the cross and the tail of the dragon would be cut off, symbolizing the utter defeat of the devil by Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. Through the resurrection of Jesus, the devil is nothing but a scared animal with his tail between his legs. We have true peace from Jesus. We have the peace of conscience that, that our sins and our failure to measure up to God's perfect law are atoned by Jesus. The mirror of the law was satisfied by Jesus. And we have peace that this world cannot do anything to our eternal life. Nature cannot go against God's will. And so we pray for God's will to be done. Let me close, close with a, a quote from a Lutheran theologian around the time of the Reformation, Johann Swagenberg. 
speaking of the comfort that Jesus' victory gives to us. The game is already won. The battle is over. Victory is here, and all has been vanquished. All that remains is to not give up, but hold tight. Even if you see the old dragon, the serpent of hell, viciously spread his jaws, flash his fangs, wet his claws, rage and storm, and tyrants strike and shake their fist. Remember the words of Jesus, I have overcome the world, for all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So Christian, pray. Pray. Your Father in heaven will hear you. The earth will submit to his will, and your joy will be made complete. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.